Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms. By watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. This week, we are talking about the Broadway production of M. Butterfly, specifically a performance from January 4th of 1990. This isn't one you'll be able to search up. Uh, Find yourself a copy of the play and give it a read before listening. We mention this because while we review the show itself, we also share thoughts about the specific performance we've seen. The internet is your friend, darling. So without further ado, the curtain is now rising. I think I know exactly how the plot's going to go because I've seen Miss Saigon. Oi. Please enjoy our discussion of the January 4th, 1990 performance of M. Butterfly. I am here in my critical cell. And I know you are all laughing at me. I've heard the rumors. I know what they're saying in parlors. You're laughing at me because my co-host has lied to me for over the last 20 episodes. He says he's Canadian, but really, he's a Russian. He's a spy for Russian theater. Am I supposed to come in now, or are you still doing your thing? I I was done. You have, okay, well, normally, you know, he sort of had, like, a bit more dialogue in the play, sort of set it up more, and then sort of, like, you know, introduced. Yeah, but, no, that's fine. You, yeah, okay, I, I well, you didn't, you didn't here's pay close attention to the play. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Here's my Russian co-host, Yevgeny Yenin. What did you just say? Your Russian name, Yevgeny Nevin. Why does that have to be my Russian name? Because I said so. It's been established. Great, now we're getting into Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Is this this going to be one of those episodes? (laughs) What do you mean by one of those episodes? What do you mean, what do I mean by one of those episodes? What are you you trying to say about me? You have a... (laughs) <laughs> I have a type? How do you know? <laughs> Clearly Certainly not, not in that you. sense. You... Ooh. Oh. Oh, my loss. I'm so... <laughs> I'm so distraught. Oh, fuck you. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are talking about the original Broadway production of M. Butterfly, uh, written by David Henry Huang. Yes, M. Butterfly by David Henry Huang. M. Butterfly opened on March 20th of 1988, and it closed in January 27th of 1990. So this was a play, original play that ran two years. Doesn't much happen on Broadway anymore. Right. Yeah, especially not anymore. Um, You get a star that does the show for 14 weeks, and that's that, kid. Yeah. You, uh, you know, especially, you know, now a lot of plays are, you know, they're lucky to make it to nine months. Well, and That's not like only a... that, this is the third Gamar that they had. So it didn't even, it wasn't just a first replacement. This is multiple replacements into the run. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it says here that they, what, Anthony Hopkins actually played the role at one point, which... That would have been a great performance, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, it is 
directed by John Dexter. John Dexter, of course, did Equus, and Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. was in Equus. Right. So there's the connection. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, David had some very, very kind things to say about him as a director in the afterword as well. Um, I, I watched along with a copy of the script, and the afterword sort of uh, gave a little bit of insight both into the production uh, of the show itself as well as you know some of those foundational ideas that uh, built the show. Uh, and, he, and he was very pointed to, to talk about how you know he really just took the material and ran with it. And like, I, I, I think that's represented in the production though. Well, of course we'll get to that, uh, mm-hmm. later. I have, I have some very good things to say about the, about the direction. Mm-hmm. Well, and John um, Dexter was one of the legendary directors in Broadway history and he mm-hmm. was very quippy and he was slightly abusive specifically towards BD Wong. According to, oh, is that so? Uh-huh, according to a book that I read, I read Stuart Ostro's autobiography. He produced M. Butterfly. Um, I read it years ago. I don't remember specifically, but I do remember the relationship between B.D. Wong and um, John Dexter was fraught, and the issue seemed to be John Dexter. Hmm. A lot of people thought he was very effective as a director. He was a bit of a tyrant. Um, mm-hmm. Not the kindest person to get along with. He was the director of productions at the Met Opera for a couple, about a decade. Oh. The, he, he oversaw all new productions at the Met. He didn't necessarily direct all new productions, but he was in charge yeah. of getting everything coordinated, and he would direct a lot of the new productions. I can see that in this, kind of. I can kind of see that reflected. And this Especially is... seeing as, like, it takes its greatest... Well, I would, I should say its second greatest inspiration off of an opera. I think, yeah. Um, it is largely a rethinking of Puccini's Madama Butterfly. Yeah. Now... <laughs> I would say a more effective one than the other. Oh, <laughs> Miss Saigon... <laughs> the one, the only. What what problems do you have with Miss Saigon? <laughs> it's a perfect. Let's show. not start that conversation, right? Dan. Please, it's a perfect show. <laughs> the perfect show. See, I can't even. I can't even like pretend to join you on like a technical level. Like that's not even true on a technical level. <laughs> David Henry Wag. <laughs> Miss Saigon was opening up Broadway. He was out in the street saying, Miss Saigon is perfect. Change nothing. <laughs> yes. I believe he wrote an, a, a letter to Equity commending them on their decision. <laughs> to let Jonathan Price into the country. To play a nation. He offered, he offered his own couch to Jonathan Price. What a, what a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, um, Miss Saigon was... Very heavily protested, even before coming to Broadway. Uh, and David Henry Huang and B.D. Wong uh, wrote letters to Equity, strongly pushing them to reject Jonathan Price's visa so that he couldn't come into America playing a yellow-faced role. Um, Equity agreed and refused to allow Jonathan Price to enter the country. And then... Uh, uh, 
philanthropist producer Cameron McIntosh. Great humanitarian. Um, and my oh, closest oh, friend for the last you know. X amount of years. If there's one thing he is, it's charitable. Um, <laughs> you look he, at him, you he, just um, think charity, charity, charity. He he threatened to pull the production. He completely threatened to just totally pull out if Jonathan Price was not to be involved. Equity was forced to relent. He came on. Uh, there was not a single Caucasian actor to play the role after. Equity but... was not forced to relent. Equity decided they were going to relent. Harvey Firestein left the Dramatist Guild at the time because he said if the Dramatist Guild wasn't standing up against this, then what was the point of even having a Dramatist Guild? But the Dramatist Guild is the writers' union. It was more than just Equity. There were multiple people protesting. And... It happened. Also at the time, Cameron McIntosh said that he had to have Jonathan Price um, play the engineer in Miss Saigon because there were no talented Asians. Which is he such a were... great, great way to assist the dilemma that your show's going through. Uh-huh. He, you know, he said there were... The... B.D. Wong's over there holding his Tony Award and he said, there are no talented Asian actors. You know, you know for all the money that Cameron McIntosh has hoarded over the years, you'd think he'd have enough to purchase himself a goddamn PR agency. You think he'd have one person on his side going, hey, don't put that out into the world. You'd think. Clearly no, he's got because some, he thought uh, that he's to, to this day, he talks about how he stood up to equity and he did what was right. To this day, really? He's still defending that decision? I saw a documentary that the BBC did. And I believe about I... 2016, where he talked about, and he was in very in a triumphant mode talking about, he stood up against actors' equity and he opened the show. And that I Jonathan Price that. was great in the production. Well, he won, he won the stupid Tony. Oh, don't call the Tony Which stupid. Is... It may, Tony makes a lot of wrong decisions, but we he want won a the smart wrong Tony. decision-making Tony. How's that? Is that better? Better syntax? Yeah. He okay, he, he won the Tony for. You're you're gonna you're gonna defend the institution that tried to play Bette Midler off, really? That's where you're at right now? That was <laughs> Fuck you, you bitch. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. Um <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> what just because liza wins a couple tonys all of a sudden they can do no wrong grow up how many tonys has barbara ro- barbara won she has an honorary oh ooh, ooh! they didn't they didn't think she was good enough for one based on merit she got Stand a up for yourself special man. tony for bringing luster to the decade that's special she didn't she didn't win a tony for bringing talent to funny girl she lost to Carol Channing for Hello Dolly, which... Oh, that's if, a conflict for you. If you're going to lose to someone, okay, I can understand her losing to Carol Channing in Hello Dolly. Phyllis Newman, Subways are for sleeping rather than Barbara and I can get it for you wholesale. That is the one I have more trouble with. I'm just saying, question your institutions. I question my institutions. So and Butterfly. Yes, I think you were about to ask me a question. Maybe. Uh, the question was probably, 
something along the lines of what did you know about M Butterfly before watching it today? I knew it was a play by David Henry Huang. I knew about the same. I uh that the that copy of the script uh had been sitting on my shelf for a year, maybe two now. I knew it was a play that was popular. I didn't know a single thing about it. Um and was very pleased to bust it out and uh read along with it watching this. Uh I will say I did make the mistake of reading the back cover first, so I had pretty much the entire conceit of the story sort of spoiled for me off the get-go. But oh, I, otherwise... I knew. Hmm. You know, I did... I don't know if you know this, but LA Theatre Works does professional recordings of a lot of plays over the years. And oh, yeah. you can get them at the library. And there's oh. a lot of digital libraries you can get them at. I had checked out M. Butterfly, and their recording of M. Butterfly had John Lithgow and B.D. Wong. It had the two original stars huh. in the show. From post-Broadway? Yeah. Both of the original stars were in the show. A lot of the theater, L.A. Theater Works material has major Broadway stars in the show. Both right. the original Broadway stars were in the show. Um, I had checked it out and I had listened to about the first five minutes and I meant to go back and then it just expired before I could finish it. Dang. I would, I would really love to see those original performances. So do you want to be honest on why we chose this show? Yeah. Um, this is, we are well into the twenties with this episode. Uh, and we fucked we up. We have, yeah, we've, we've blindly not gone this far without mentioning a single production with, uh, prominent Asian artists, uh, which is stupid that it's taken us this long to, to get to a play that has featured, uh, Asian artists. It's, it's, pretty it stupid. speaks, it speaks to our privilege because, we were creating this list of shows that we just, I want to cover this. I want to cover this. Um, we had discussed Miss Saigon actually pretty in depth about when we would choose it under what conditions and what kind of conversations we would want to have first and what we want to do before we covered Miss Saigon. But it didn't occur to either of us that, we had not only not chosen a show by an Asian writer, we didn't cover a single Asian actor. Which is pretty and stupid. And that was bad of us. Yeah. And something that should have been remedied long ago um, and will not be this scarce going forward. That's for sure. Uh, Hopefully not. Yeah. There's a there's there is a lot to be said about um Asian inclusion or you know I guess in the more general sense the inclusion of people of color on commercial stages such as Broadway. And you know, I'm not like I don't mean to say that as if uh well these people have had uh such limited resources so that's why we haven't got to them because it's so scarce. No. There it's been scarce, but there are still huge, huge displays of incredibly powerful 
Asian talent on Broadway stages. B.D. Wong won the Tony for this. There's Leia Salonga. There's uh, coming up with the list is reductive. Hades Town, who's been huge. Sorry, coming up with the list is reductive. There are major Asian theater stars, and we should have done better. And and also major Asian theater creatives in general, and and so I feel like this was a good play to address. You know, a play that was created by Asian artists about the Asian experience. You know, it's a, it's a big step towards, you know, self-representation on huge commercial stages, which is crucial. Yeah, so I'm very excited to get into this conversation about this show. I am too. So generally, what did you think of the play? Um, I had an incredible time watching this. It's a play in which its construction is so thorough and so thought out and just so well constructed. Like, that's the only way I can think to put it. Um, the the use of all these um, theatrical tactics in order to communicate the story, the, um, you know, breaking of the fourth wall, the meshing of different performance styles, uh, the lack of linear time, they're all used to like such an interesting effect. And there are plays that really go overindulgent with it and sort of fall flat on their face. And this one really just knows how to chug along. There's not a, there's not a sluggish part of this play. Um, no. It is relentlessly exciting. It is relentlessly interesting. You're always having to work through something. You're always having to like figure out a puzzle of whatever it is that's happening right now in front of you. Um, and it was just such an incredible watch. It was so stimulating. That's the, that's the best word, word I think I can use to it. Really, really stimulating. Uh, you, Dan, what did you think? So, I kind of had a realization mm-hmm. a while ago uh, that personally, I love plays that are not necessarily immersive but I love plays that break the fourth wall Uh I love non-linear plays I love Uh plays that acknowledge more or less we are sitting in a theater there is an audience watching us yeah it shows shows that are telling you the audience member a story basically not necessarily, but something that plays with the fact that this is not a movie. This is a live exchange of energy. Shows that play with the nebulous idea of theatricality and what that means. Hmm. And th- sure. this play definitely checked that box. Um, oh, yeah. It is a play with a lot of big ideas. It's a play with big ideals which we will talk about. And there's some really crackling dialogue. Yeah. It's kind of um 
I really use that term when I talk about movies and old MGM Hollywood movies. The idea that the dialogue doesn't just sit there, it kind of crackles. You can feel sparks coming off of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Something I personally love, this play had that. This play checked a lot of my boxes of personal taste. Yeah. I agree. It was those specific things that you mentioned that like are the the things that really stood out to me. That over theatricality, that uh, like coal on the fire engine that that kept the dialogue going. Um, that was always what was most exciting for uh, for me. And 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 just in terms of the way the plot is structured, and the way that the events take place, it's. It's just so it, it's so exciting. It, it, it's always an oh shit, this is happening right now. It, they found a way to make flashback scenes exciting, which you know you have to be you have to be really really careful with flashback scenes in order to make them but, exciting. They have to be like really deeply rooted, or else you run the risk of just you know. Well, I mean, the entire making something feel like okay, well, this is fantastical. It doesn't have it, any weight. It doesn't matter to me. It, it is somewhat a memory play. The entire play is told in flashback. Yeah. So I don't know if yeah. flashback scene is even the right term. The entire play is told. In I should flashback. say. I should, sorry. I should say. I should say. Uh, when I sorry. When I say flashback scene, I mean the uh, the dream scenes, particularly, uh, such as. Uh, I'm thinking particularly. You know, all the scenes where Gallimar is being uh, visited in his dreams by Mark, um, or, you know, that sort of those moments, in, that 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 final huge moment in Act Three. Where it's an all imaginary conversation between Song and Renee. Moments like that, where it's. where, you know, despite the fact that we know that this is a story being told to us and this is like a recollection kind of storytelling, those things where you know, even in the recollection, this is completely imagined. And therefore, he, you know, we're not being told events that are actually going on in the story. It's easy to sort of find apathy in that yeah. in sort of going um you know this isn't real this isn't happening why should i well like, like this isn't really gonna matter i i get i can sort we're of tune seeing, out a little bit i can just that kind it, of thing essentially in those scenes we are seeing rene galima uh justify himself absolutely in his exactly. own psyche through having his friend appear his friend isn't actually there very interesting pieces of the show where you are really let into how this character allowed these actions to occur. It's a bizarre plot. Can I say something really terrible right now that just came to mind? Mm. And in that way, this Dear is Evan why... Hansen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is is M Butterfly to blame for Dear Evan Hansen? Oh God, haven't the Asian community suffered? <laughs> <laughs> don't blame, don't, don't throw that on David Henry Wang. <laughs> That's not his fault. Oh boy. Um, I actually like Dear Evan Hansen. You can't open me up for a line like that. I'm always going to take it, regardless of my opinions. 
<laughs> what was even the topic? Oh, yeah, we're saying that Gallimard is. We see inside his psyche in those scenes. Um, yeah. Where do you want to start with actually discussing the play? I suppose let's start with, I guess, the overall uh, thesis. You you ask a lot moral, and I've been thinking about this. Yeah. Just in general, uh, in terms of the podcast, not specifically with this show. No, I no, no, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I usually think ask the we question. need um, to update that. Oh, yeah? Because I think not all shows necessarily have a moral. No, no, but every show need uh, has a has a point. Rather than a moral, they have a point. Right. I think the question so, we should than... be asking is, what do you walk away with, or what do you, what does the author want you to walk away with? Sure. Okay. And I mention it here because there is not one single moral. I think this play has two major topics: East versus West masculine versus feminine and the show really wants you to examine your personal preconceived notions of those topics yeah and how those topics intersect um, yeah it feels like a big old slap to the face of orientalism and this, like, fetishizing of Asian culture that has so been built up through these universally adopted Western beliefs of Asian culture, of, you know, both, actually, yeah, you're right, in the intersectionality, both of Asian culture, looking at the East versus West thing, and also in the belief of, uh, you know, the male belief of the women's place in society to be that, like, submissive deferral and that, you know, despite the fact that people say, oh, you know, we're a modern society where progressive women are whoever they want to be now, they're, you know, there's still that ever-prescient toxic belief that uh, every man wants a submissive woman and every man wants wants someone who will defer to them and bow to them because of that, you know, that prevalence of toxic masculinity and, you know, male superiority, I suppose. And furthermore, the show posits that a lot of Western depictions of Asian people and a lot of just Western views of Asian people... We expect Asian people to be diminutive and subservient because we view Asian culture overall as female. Yes. That's something that, like, you know, uh, Huang wrote about in that afterward I was mentioning. He talked about, he also talked about um, this um, belief in the, um, not this belief, this this trope in uh the the gay community of a rice queen mm-hmm. um i don't know if you know bet more about that than i do it might be your place to 
Mention what are you mind. trying to say about me? Whoa! No, 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 in that you're more... Did you just call me a you're... rice queen? No, I, I, I'm calling you a homosexual, and that you're more How dare to you? gay How discourse dare than you? a straight Why man would be. Why did you ever think I was a homosexual? How... You're just going to accuse can't... me of such things, you can't, such you unsavory can't... things. You can't throw me into this bit, because I will run with it too hard. That's what he said. Do you want me to talk about it or do you want to talk about it? That was solid. I don't even remember what the question was. Rice Queen. Rice Queen. You know what it is? Uh, Rice Queen is someone who's into Asians and kind of fetishizes Asians. I read as well that there's this sort of like trend that, uh, you know, people in relationships like that will, you know, uh, the, the Caucasian man in the relationship will assume the male role whereas the asian man in the in the dynamic will assume the female yes um, that is an assumption yeah and and i that feel is like... not based in reality we should say that is an assumption yeah. that is not based in reality right sorry i should have i should have specified that um but, but i think that is something that also you know, that, that is something that is the uh, playwright's understanding of it, and you can see that reflected in the in the script. You can see that, like, really being one of the more prevalent uh, dynamics in that, at the end, what it boils down to is it is two men standing across from each other, even though it's in, even though it's in a courtroom and then in a fantasy... Still, uh, Renee is giving him the the female role. Even still, you know. By the end, though. Well, I mean, just when he realizes it, or I guess when he re- realizes it in like the way he tells the story. Okay. If that if that makes sense. So yeah, you, you know, there's there's this like you know. He gets this like fervent excitement when he sees this, you know, embodiment of Orientalism that he's so uh, he sees astonished with. He sees yeah. his butterfly. Uh huh. He um, refers to her as his butterfly. The show is a rethinking of. The opera, Madama Butterfly. It's not the only uh, play from this period that is a rethinking. There is Lisbon Traviata, which uh-huh. is a rethinking of a number of operas. That was Terence McNally around the same time period. This is a rethinking of Madama Butterfly. We were seeing a lot of plays getting reworked getting modernized and really interrogating why are these the stories that we are stuck with yeah and 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 and, and you know the first thing i found really interesting about the show what's that it opens with a verbal retelling of the madama butterfly opera 
And you know who never speaks? Uh, the, the butterfly. Yeah, Song Liang. Not once. Not once. Says anything. Sings a couple lines. Doesn't say anything. And that was kind of really keying off. Oh, the Asian isn't speaking because the Asian never spoke when the opera was created. There was no Asian, meaning there was no Asian voice behind the opera. There was no Asian opinion of the opera. It was was a white man's ideal of what they assumed Asians to be. Which is, you know, a huge trend in the history of representation throughout popular theater. In the opera, in ballet, uh, on Broadway, what do you for mean? sure. I, 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 I mean in the sense that uh, white creatives for a long time have sort of used people of color to tell their own stories without any interest in actually connecting with the community and, and uh, representing them in an authentic way. Yes, very much so. Yeah. What, um... So that was the what, first what... time for me that it, it seemed a clever bit of construction and that yeah. we are really going to be not retreading familiar territory. We are going to be taking familiar territory, ripping up the map, analyzing what roads are on this map, and rejigging them to create a different pathway. Yeah. You it's, like that? De- deconstructing nice the image. Myth. Uh-huh. Very deconstructing nice image. You paint it beautifully. Uh-huh. I just came up with that on the spot. That's how good I am. Wow. You know what you are, Dan? Incredible. You're incredible. I am. I am incredible. You're fantastic. So, um, what were some so, of the things that you noticed about the writing? It, it um, the, I would say the writing primarily from... Rene, when he's sort of giving his speeches to the audience, I don't know why, but I always got a little sense of intimidation from those. Even from the very beginning, I'd say like the first 15 minutes especially, there was this like really unnerving feeling about the way he was communicating. Um, in what sense? In, in the sense of I wasn't off the bat able to tell whether this person was crazy or not. He okay. he was getting across his story. He's acknowledging an imagined audience. And it already puts you in sort of an uncomfortable decision of like, oh my oh my god, are we figures inside a guy's head right now? That's that that's a scary concept to wrap a head around, you know? And so from the bat there's that sort of discomfort. And I think eventually the story of it of it lulls you in. It bec- you become really engrossed in the storytelling of it all. Um, it's very brash dialogue. It's very uh, I'm gonna say unflowery. There are like poetic descriptions. Uh, it's not purple from Rene. Yeah, it's not prose. All those like like sometimes there are poetic descriptions from Renee, but they're they they always have like a thing of malice to them. They always have. It, it's always accompanied by a gross view, or an inherent misunderstanding, or just an uncomfortable understanding of events. You know. 
Let's um, stick with the character of Rene for a second. Sure. Uh, Rene Gallimard. At a certain point, we realize that he views himself as Pinkerton in the Madame Butterfly opera. And we should Which mention is, you know, healthy. The Madame Butterfly, Madama Butterfly, was based on a David Belasco play, Madame Butterfly, that played on Broadway in the 1900s. Mm hmm. Early 1900s. And we still have the Belasco Theater. Named after David Belasco, owned by David Belasco. David Belasco wrote a lot of plays that Puccini ended up then adapting into operas. Hmm. Um, he views himself as Pinkerton, and about halfway through Act Two, you realize he wants to be Pinkerton, but in reality, he is Chocho San. Which, you know, the, the the play ends putting a nice little spotlight on that. He dresses up as Cho Cho Sen, yeah. What moment did you notice that turn? You know, I think I think it was like the outright, like, oh, it's been this character all along. I think that really only came into place when he got the knife. That, for me, was like, oh, this is who he's become. But I think those seeds, I sort of like subconsciously realized that they were planted probably, I would say, second half of Act 1. Yeah, I could see um, it coming early on. The moment when I really noticed that it changed and they had changed places. So, um... Yes. Song comes to France, arrives... That as well. And he said... The poster, I have the room waiting for you. The poster that you like, the Klimt painting, is hanging in the room. And that is directly, you know, Chocho-san sets up the flowers, tries to make the space nice because she thinks that her man is coming back. And yeah. that was the moment for me. This is exactly it. He is now Chocho-san. Uh, Helga actually sort of outright says something along the lines of, you know, you're breaking up with me for over, over a girl you'll never see. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is really just, uh, um, an outright reflection of Chocho Sen, uh, turning away the successful, uh, potential husband in favor of someone yeah. that she doesn't know she'll ever see again. Mm-hmm. There are multiple uh, places where it's very clear the roles have been changed and Song is the person in power. And you know that um, metaphor in the very beginning of, uh, what is it? I think it was the, the cheerleader falling in love with the Japanese businessman mm -hmm. who, you know, rejects a Kennedy. Mm -hmm. That's... That's pretty reflective of what's to happen in the play as well. Th th that's that's uh, foreshadowing of, hey, this is what's going to happen in this play. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> David Henry Huang is saying, you would never believe this story. And guess what? You're going to watch exactly this story. And yeah, you're, you're going to watch it. it by the end. Yeah. Which speaks to his power as a playwright. 
Sincerely. Why don't we get into the themes? Sure. Let's start with, uh, yeah, let's start with that. Masculinity versus femininity. And, um, what, what, what they mean. You know, what, what role does masculinity play in M. Butterfly? What role does femininity play in M. Butterfly? So from the very beginning, from the retelling of the opera that the show starts with, you're getting some really terribly misogynistic language out of Gallimard and his friend... Mark. Mark. And it is setting up these are misogynists. And, again, it's almost... It does end up intersecting with East versus West. The masculinity has gone so toxic... It's not just their everyday life. It, it The toxic masculinity becomes their entire political outlook. It also shows you how it... It, it gives a theory as to kind of like how it develops, right? Because there's the fantasy sequence of the girl in the magazine. And that, I think, is a brilliant portrayal of, like, you know, the male psyche. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, how those things develop, how those aspects of tos- toxic masculinity are driven by these yeah. Yeah. created created depictions of lust. You know, it's, 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 well, it, it from thrives there, off those things. From that magazine sequence, we realize very early on he's interested in his fantasy. Yeah. And by the end of the show, he outright states, I don't want the truth, I want my fantasy. It gets so desperate that he has to outright say that. And by the time he does say that, it's not just an indictment of the character. It's an indictment about Western culture. Yeah. We know more of the reality of what was once termed the Orient. We have a better idea of who Asian people are. And we choose not to do better. Because we like our fantasy right. more than we like the actual reality. We're not mm-hmm. interested in the reality of these human beings living their day-to-day life. We're not empathetic toward them. I wouldn't... I, I don't know. I don't know the word to use, but I, the word I want to go is, like, we're more comfortable um, staying in this outdated belief of ours because it's one that has become so ingrained, one that we're so familiar with, that it just feels it feels more correct to perpetuate these outdated hateful and harmful beliefs that you know well it's it's what we're familiar with and we are having a hard time parting with it i i think that really is the large truth that he tapped into western people yeah. view asians as feminine and because we can't dismantle our toxic masculinity we will never see asian people as equals yes which you know like again that outright draws the line between those two and shows how sexism and toxic masculinity plays into all aspects the same way that uh, racism plays into all aspects of hatred and of perpetuating toxic beliefs 
here's an interesting thing. The play presents racists and outright presents people that are proud of their racism. Yet, you never get the sense that this is problematic along racial lines. And uh, th- in general, or from from these people's perspectives. Well, well it, you know, when you see an old movie and you're kind of, it's yeah. that moment of I forget which Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie, but Fred Astaire says something about the Bojangles number. Just references one line about the Bojangles number, and you go, "Oh no, I know what's coming." Don't do this mm. to me. Don't do this to me. I know what exactly... And sure enough, he shows up and he's in blackface. Because it's the Bojangles mm. number. And you get that sinking pit in your stomach. This play presents racists, presents people that are proud of their racism, and yet you don't get that sinking feeling in your stomach because ultimately the writer at the helm, the person in control is the person that racism is being perpetrated against. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what you're going for. It, it, it really is weaponizing this thing that has been weaponized against you. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, like, weaponization. Re- reclaiming or is a... Reclaiming. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a reclaiming of the racism that has been used against you and it is not even something that can tangibly be put into words but because it is a reclamation you're not worried about where this play is going to be taking you you're not worried about every line the character says you know it's racist you know it should be racist you know that you're not supposed to like that character you you know it's meant to be taken as racism. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, right, because that's... It is, the, it that, is not that, that accidentally... Is it is so shorthanded, it is never accidentally problematic. Yeah. yeah, it's never racism that was designed in a way to be acceptable to the audience, like, you know, you as you mentioned, the Bojangles number, in which an audience is meant to derive pleasure or entertainment out of racism but is instead used to demonstrate the casualness of of these racist beliefs in order to demonstrate how these people are racist. It's not using racism in order to tell its story. It's using racism to demonstrate racism. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, shouldn't be a big ask, but only really, you know, you only really, really find that comfort in, uh, you know, POC writers. Yep. And so it is possible. Well, and I mention it because it is possible to really investigate topics of racism and Orientalism. But ultimately, the person that has to be in charge can't be the white person. Of course. You wouldn't trust the white person. You, you you can't write something about hatred towards a community from someone whose community has been the one perpetrating the hatred. 
you're not going to trust that, and there's really no reason not to inherently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, do you want to take this over now to, um, you know, that view of East versus West? Uh, sure. Y- you know, this play is chock full, as we we're just mentioning, of blatant in-your-face racism perpetrated by these French characters. Uh, I, I guess it's more relevant to say these Western characters. Um, towards this belief of how the East is meant to act, how the, their people are meant to be, and that's why um, that's why Gemillard is so susceptible to believing Song right away. Because, obviously, she starts playing into these stereotypical ideals of how he expects Asian people to act and to be. And so, as she defers and as she, you know, sort of puts that on, he eats it up instantly. Because she is she is weaponizing stereotypes. Exactly. Weaponizing all of the expectations, weaponizing all of the stereotypes, giving him what he wants to hear, giving him the fantasy he wants to believe so that Song can be an effective spy. Uh-huh. Clearly, it's, it's a big theme throughout the play. It's just, I also know. find it interesting oh. to know Gallimar is terrible at his job. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. Gets fired, uh, specifically because they say all of the predictions you have made are blatantly wrong, <laughs> are blatantly false, and if you can't make predictions, and if you're not understanding the people here, why do we have you in China? And yeah. it is exactly because... Of his overall toxic masculinity, it is because of his expecting Asian people to be feminine that he is unable to make decent predictions. Yeah. It's because he's, he's, a interested, guy. he's interested in the fantasy. He's not actually interested in any of these Asian people as human beings. Yep. Perpetrating this fantasy that uh has been perpetrated through all these different uh pieces of popular culture like madama butterfly yes and and maybe that's why he continues to be perpetrated after m butterfly and miss saigon (laughs) yay hooray um but uh, like that 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 definitely speaks to why he likes the show so much, right? Because it's just something that plays into that fantasy, those ideals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else is there to mention? Um, you had already previously mentioned the American cheerleader and the Japanese businessman. I do want to say uh, this show puts racism in terms that are easy for white people to understand. That comes around to um, that kind of conversation we were having about La Cajafol, remember? Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about 
how that show was a show written from a gay perspective in a way that was sort of meant to be digestible to the heterosexual people who wouldn't be open to hearing those conversations in the first place. And I think M. Butterfly's construction is also in such a way that it makes it really digestible for not even just people who are actively perpetrating this kind of behavior, but for people who had never even thought about the fact that they may be doing it unintentionally with, with, with preconceived notions of theirs that they've been unconsciously acting upon all these years. It, it, it It's good as something that would like force someone to look within themselves and like try to acknowledge that about mm-hmm. the way they carry themselves. Yeah. It's good at making you rethink all of the information you walked into the theater assuming. Totally. All of your pre- totally. preconceived you, notions. You absolutely, you, you don't leave that theater with nothing taken away, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. It's so incredibly woven into the storytelling. It's not something like The Sound of Music where it's a musical about a family and then Nazis happen. It, this isn't a, a play about <laughs> yeah. a French a French politician and then racism happens. Racism yeah. is ingrained in the show's existence. Racism is the gasoline that gets the car to run. Yeah, which you could say about America too. <sighs> which you could say about Canada. Yes, which you can also say about Canada. So, this being said. Do you want to talk about the actual... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on, I just want to say, I thought Act 3, Act 3 song gets to assume their male identity and drops the act that he's been putting on for the entire show. And I'd like to mention something as well. Um, Something that really, like, interested me reading the script as I was watching along. Um, I don't think the video captured it captures it as well, but it's written into the stage directions that song's transformation is meant to be done with stage lights at half and house lights at full, which essentially means that this is a five-minute intermission. Yes. In which this character transformation is meant to be taken place. There's even a line, I'm going to make a big transformation. It's going to take five minutes. You can get up but we will continue after five minutes. Yes. And, you know, and when the show, and when it begins again, there's applause. So you almost, I was wondering, you know, I wonder if the audience did get up. I wonder if the audience actually, if anyone did go to get a drink or use a bathroom or whatever, or stretch their legs, or if everyone really sat there through the house lights going up and watched. It was interesting. There was certainly something to watch. Yeah, yeah, I was really transfixed by it. Actually, did you did you skip through it? No. Hmm. No, did you? Yeah, I think uh, after like three minutes or so, I think I skipped once or twice. Well, no, because there was also music happening, and yeah. I wanted to hear all of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to say that Act Three specifically is the best piece of writing I've experienced so far this year. I'm not just saying that. It is genuinely the best piece of writing. It's such a distillation of the show's themes. It is such crackling dialogue. Mm -hmm. 
there is such a transference of power, not just between the two characters that completely shifted, completely flipped on you, but a transference of power between the audience member and the playwright himself. Just brilliance. I yeah, I was I was gonna ask what it was that you attributed to specifically, but I think you you really hit the nail on the head, and and I think it really has Time most stopped. to do. Yeah, yeah, it has most to do with. It's not just that Act Three holds so well on its own, but what what makes Act Three so exciting and so brilliant is the way it acts as a response to Act 1 and Act 2. And the way that you have to... Not only does the show force you to... interrogate your preconceived notions, Act 3 forces you to interrogate how you viewed Act 1 and Act 2. Yes. And the power dynamics that existed in Act 1 and Act 2. Uh-huh. And another thing about it as well, what makes it exciting is that song has complete dominance, mm-hmm. like total dominance over the story. Act one is entirely Renee telling his story. It's it's completely him. Act two, he starts losing control to song. Act three is songs. Well, and not He's only that, hers. song does not give up really stage time to anybody. He's on trial, uh-huh. and he's dominating the judge, even. Something that I'd noticed is that until Song had her first moment with uh, Comrade Chin, Renee had been on stage the entire time. Why don't we then move into that? Okay, so in that case, I'll, I'll transfer this point onto production. Um, and, I, and I will say... The first thing I want to commend uh, is the set design. I thought it was Gorgeous such a design. brilliant, brilliant set design. Um, there's this big, what would you call it? A catwalk? Um, a, 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 it's a it's a big staircase without stairs. It's a ramp. It's a ramp. It's a large, twisting ramp. Yeah. That starts way upstage, slinks down in a U-shape, and comes and, and plummets below the stage, downstage. And Into the orchestra I think pit. It, yeah. And, and I think its greatest effect is... that When you're staging a scene, you're sort of meant to believe that what you're looking at is equivalent to like a fixed camera angle of a, of a look of a place, right? You're stuck in a locale, and if someone walks left into the wings, then they've just gone so far left that they're like leaving the physical location. With this, you don't just have someone walking off stage or whatever. They disappear down into the stage. And so it becomes less of a, hey, they've left the location, and more of a, they've faded out. They've disappeared. They're faded out from memory, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, and Renee never goes down that ramp in the entirety of the first act. It's only in the second act where songs narration finally asserts dominance that he fades he disappears huh he's not the focus anymore i didn't even notice that yeah it's completely it he totally fades from the story and songs on stage and then he comes 
I believe he comes back up through the ramp. He doesn't start at the top as like, you know, most people do, but he climbs back up from the bottom of the ramp. So it's like he's fading back in. And that was something that I thought was powerful. And then uh, act three, song never fades until, until Gallimard's complete dismissal of song. And she literally like, slides not down just, the ramp not just complete dismissal complete i don't care what the truth is i want to live in my fantasy yeah rejection sort of, of reality yeah complete rejection of reality and in doing so just completely pushes reality to his own will pushes out whatever he doesn't want mm-hmm. you know brilliant brilliant design work on this show uh, both the scenic and costume design was by Iko Ishioka, and mm-hmm. it it's a single set play, but you never feel limited. Uh, the space is constantly changing, it's constantly interesting, and perfectly encounters what it needs to do. We first see Song, and he's at the top of the ramp, she's... We're seeing Song is female at that point. Mm-hmm. She's on a pedestal, quite literally. Yeah, it's it's really, really, really powerful design, and it's like it it it's really it's deceptively simple. It deceptively seems simple. like mm-hmm. it seems like oh, it's a platform and there's a couple sliding things up and down there, and then there's like one big old ramp, and so they'll stage it however they want to stage it. It's just a weird you know, good for layers or whatever. But no, the way it serves and bows to narrative purpose is just incredible. Yeah, that was absolutely gorgeous. What did you think of the costume design? Um, You know, to be honest, the video we saw didn't have a lot of detail on the costumes. They hmm. looked fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They looked fine. Yeah, I'd yeah. probably I- love them a lot more if I got the detail, but we weren't able to see a lot of detail on the costumes. Right. One thing I, I adored about this show was sound design. That was, I, this is like, you know, one of the most we're talking about designs of a show. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because what this, pl- what this play really has going for it is it's production's total theatricality, like down to the damn curtain. Everything's useful. Um, oh, that was a beautiful... It, we, we didn't mention the curtain. That was a beautiful curtain. Yeah, really, really was. And it also played off this, like, you know, traditional sort mm-hmm. of subversion from the Western curtain, from this big red velvety thing. Yeah. Uh, it didn't It didn't totally touch each of the wings, and it, to- and it didn't totally touch the ground. It was like, you know, an actively sort of dangling cloth with a really, really interesting pattern. Um, mm-hmm. that was just gorgeous. Um, and yeah, yeah, but back, going back to the sound design, um, you get these like tinny tape recording audios of Madama Butterfly. And then you also get these, in, this incredible, incredible underscoring for, uh, the performances at the Peking Opera, which I adored. It was so exciting. It was so gripping. Um, mm-hmm. really, really engrossing sound design from this. And, and 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 it's it's use especially throughout the show it's narrative purpose that it, that that last the last moment of the show where you know 
Gallimard, as Madame Butterfly plunges the knife into his chest and Love Duet plays the second he makes contact. Mm-hmm. That's just like a that's a that's a blow you back in your chair moment. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And and of course, as you mentioned before, the music during a song's transformation. Yes. Yeah. And it looks like there were uh one, two, three different live musicians that played during this show. Oh yeah. And they were able to accomplish so much sound. True. I compl I completely forgot that I was really wondering like um if they were diving into the orchestra pit sort of where they'd be placed that's another thing when was the last time you've seen a show and no one exited stage right for the entire show <laughs> not a single person wait, wait. it's because You're so right. it's because that's where the ramp is but not a single person exited stage right yeah that is unheard of. It's odd that you have... Well, it depends on what your wing space is. But directors mostly have people exit stage right. Most of the time, generally as a rule. Not a single person exited stage right. I guess the, the, the only way to get a director to not take you off stage right is when you have to design the set so you physically can't. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the direction? Oh, fantastic. Even even though I spent, like, you know, good periods of time sort of looking down at the script, you can, you can get, e even without this incredible staging, without, which I have so much to say about, you can get, like, everything you need from this, really, from the performances. The performances serve the script so incredibly well it ha there's so much care for the dialogue and so much attention and so much thought given to it there's not a single thrown away line every line serves a purpose and the direction sees that you know it's very uh -huh. easy for a director to say like uh uh, you'll just say this line. The important part is this. Make sure you hammer this part in. You can get through the rest. Make it seem natural. But no, every single moment felt articulated, felt designed. It, it was it was you know it was really 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 smart directing. Every character felt lived in. You saw this conventional, offhand perpetration of racism as like such a deeply ingrained, comfortable thing in the characters, which is probably something that you have to worm out of an actor because instinctively an actor is going to want to go, uh, you know, oh, I, this, you know, it sort of goes against my ego a little bit, and so I'm sort of uncomfortable I want to be likable. doing this kind of thing, so I might want to, you know, it's it might be harder, you know, it's harder for me to do this kind of thing, but he, the direction really, really gets to the to the heart of that, like, this is real, this comes from a real place. This is it. This is the representation of it. Well, and again, um, a matter of shifting time frame, shifting location, but uh -huh. a unit set, and you're never confused for a second. Yeah. And in terms of the staging itself, again, 
my, I, I, you know, a lot of what I had to say about the set design probably can very easily be transferred to the staging as well. Uh, specifically that, that use of the ramp to fade in and out of memory. I also appreciated uh, the sort of way that he had Renee scrambling back and forth throughout narratives in order to like really construct this story. Like He drags on set pieces at times. There are those two little... Um, uh, what would you call them? I guess those like screen door type things. Yeah, they're screens. Yeah, they're screens that he sort of like typically slides on himself. Again, really painting that picture of the narrator constructing his story before the audience. And the the um intimacy the the, the intimacy between Song and Renee is is really well constructed so that you're 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 able to, in hindsight, realize, even though in the moment you so believed that Song's intimacy could have been real, you so easily are able to look back at it in hindsight and go, oh, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, this was a complete lie from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it can fool you like that, and then at the end have you realizing, oh, of course these seeds were planted, rather than just playing it completely realistically and then going at the end like, oh, it was all a lie, and then from here on out, now it, now you're going to know it's fake. To, but to, to, to be able to have it work on both of those layers from the jump is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Very sure-handed direction. And I also want to note, um, this is from January 4th of 1990. The show closed on January 27th of 1990. This is near the end Ooh. of the run. Uh, this is two years into the run, and it doesn't even feel like a replacement cast. Yeah, I was I was kind of surprised that this wasn't an OBC, truthfully. It, because you, you certainly go to shows and people get fit into, this is what the first person did, just recreate the original performance. That's not happening here. It's, you don't feel people fitting into an existing box. This all feels original. This all feels um, created in the moment. This all feels fresh. Completely. Fantastic. Just brilliant, brilliant direction here. So, with that note, why don't we move on to the performances? Alec Mappa. As Song Liling. Just a stellar performance. You know, even even in Alec's performance, which is incredibly unique and incredibly distinctive, you're still like so easily able to tell like how BD Wong got the Tony because there's so much in this character that is so crucial to communicate. You're not just pulling a Santino Fontana and putting on uh, high heels and a, and a falsetto for a couple hours you have you have to convince the audience for a good portion of the show that you're that you're an actress i think he so effectively taps into like the portrayal of femininity on stage and so completely overtakes it that act three is straight up jarring yes Act three from him was jarring because... It feels like that's the charade. 
Well, it, you could you could understand how Gallimard bought that song was a woman because it felt very female. And when he dropped that in Act Three, you just realized the full range of the performance and just how masterful he was at creating that portrayal. That wasn't just him being himself and maybe he's femme no that was a whole put upon performance that had to be calculated had to be thought through had to really be crafted honed in on and just a powerhouse yeah like sincerely it it, never so much as a drop um it is a completely entirely all-consuming performance there is not a single moment that he does not land yeah. There's not Seriously. a single... He... Just in general, when you see a show, there's going to be maybe one line you don't believe, even if it's a great actor you're seeing on stage. They're not going to have figured out every single entire moment of the show and be absolutely believable in every single moment. Alec Mappa is believable in every single second of this show. It's it's just a thrilling performance. It's so exciting to watch and it's so exciting when it when when it changes in front of you. Mhm. Uh, Tony worthy. Yeah, of course. I think I think this guy could have won the Tony as easily as BD Wong could have. Well, I don't know if he would have won the Tony against BD Wong. I we didn't see BD Wong. Not against BD Wong, but, but like like if yeah, he yeah. had if he had originated if he had originated the role of this, he would still have won the Tony. It's at that level yeah. of immense talent. Absolutely, just thrilling. Like sincerely, fantastic. One of one of the best performances I think we've seen on the podcast. Yeah, I would agree with that. And with that, I say let's move on to Tony Randall. So, Tony Randall, here's my question. Yeah. Did, did you know who Tony Randall was before watching this? I I knew the name. I knew the name, and then I was like, where do I know the name? And then I looked it up, and I go, oh, Odd Couple. Yes, but he was not in the movie. He was in the TV uh, show, no, 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 he and he was TV in show. it on Broadway. But he was not in the movie. Yeah. Um, had you uh, ever seen Tony Randall in a movie? Or a TV show? No, I don't show? think I had. Oh. Oh. Um. Oh. Do you have, do you have something against that? Yeah, because he's made a lot of movies. Yeah, well, I'm sorry that I'd never seen Gremlins 2, The New Batch. <sighs> you hadn't My seen bad. the Doris Day Rock Hudson gigs? No. Those were fun. Doris Day, that's a star. So, uh, recommend some. Pillow After Talk, this, of course. If you haven't seen Pillow Talk, uh, Thelma Ritter, Thelma Ritter's great in that Oscar nomination. I think it won an Oscar for screenplay too. Pillow Talk's huh. great, and Tony Randall's um, been in a million different things. He was the only American Hercule Poirot in the movies. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. How many how many Poirots did they go through? I didn't know that there was like. Like, like, is it like, was it like a series kind of thing? Or was oh, no, it just no, no, any no, time no. they made an I, Agatha Christie thingy I, they had to... I, I lied, I lied. Because Albert Finney is American. And he was Perot. But I, he I, was... I, I, I know that... Tony Randall was the, the first you know. Perot in motion pictures. There we go, that's it. Mm-hmm. 
I like because I know I know the role famously through like you know Kenneth Branagh and David Suchet and stuff. I don't like Kenneth Branagh as Perot. Uh, I I remember I remember enjoying the movie. Really? Had you seen the original? No, that was my first. It was my first interpretation of the show of the oh. story. Well, then I understand why you like it. But the original has Lauren Bacall. It has Vanessa Redgrave. It has Michael York. Oof. It has um, who else is in? It has Sean Connery. It has Who's Albert Finney. That? Albert Finney. Is that? Yeah. Albert it Finney. has. Uh, it has. What's his name? I can't think of his name. I see Laertes in a pink shirt. What's his name? <laughs> I. Why am I blanking? This is... Uh, I'm sorry, I have to end the episode. I have to go to the hospital. Um, I he, understand. He was in Arthur. Anthony Perkins? No, he was in Arthur. Well, Anthony Perkins is in there. Tony Perkins. Um, John Gilgood. Oh. John Gilgood is in it. Oh, sure. Dennis Kiley is in it. Dennis Kiley was the original London Sweeney in Sweeney Todd. Huh. Oh, so now I have to watch it. Totally. <laughs> I want to say, like, like in talking about the fact that, like, Tony Randall is, like, this legendary great actor, um, this would have been him at, you know, 70 years old, I believe, and this is a very, very contemporary play for someone born in the 20s to be a part of. Well, Tony Randall was a theater actor through and through he kept yeah. coming back to theater he tried to open a national theater in america uh-huh to but but kind like, of like an american equivalent of the british national theater but you know you you picture those sort of like you know old distinguished actors you think of you know you think of ian mckellen you think of patrick stewart you think of brian dennehy you think of you know like these really old like older established actors who are like, you know, actors through and through like Lawrence Olivier and the end of his career, stuff like that. Uh, and it's like, do you see them doing Madame, uh, M butterfly? I think Olivia might've tried. You think so? Maybe. That would have been exciting. If he was in the mood, he started doing a lot of plays for TV at the end of his life. Hmm. Uh, no, it is a decent point that this is, a major movie star in a contemporary play in a play that questions sexuality in yeah. the height of the AIDS epidemic. So true. Um, I think he's in the show because first and foremost, he's an actor. He's a consummate actor. He's a good actor. And Absolutely. he thought this I, I would assume he thought this work of art was important and something he wanted to be a part of. Yeah, it's it's the mark of a brilliant actor to always be able to remain relevant and to remain contemporary. To be able to like ride those waves and to always be able to match the material no matter what period it's from. Whether you're doing a renaissance play or a play from the turn of the century or a play written in in the 2010s you know mm -hmm. the being able to adapt to every single one instead instead of just everything that was your time and earlier 
is the mark of a brilliant actor, a brilliant actor. And Tony Randall is just magnificent in this, like absolutely stunning. His, his characterization is so perfect. It's a craftsman's performance. It really is. He gives some old school acting value, old school uh-huh. star quality, um, old school idea of the voice and voice work having sonorous quality. Because again, the time that he was performed, he's pre Marlon Brando at the actor's studio and everyone started mumbling. So yeah, the clarity of diction is there. The overall understandability, for lack of a better term, is there. None of the flannel mouth. No, no flannel mouth. He's great. He's great in this. Yeah. I would Just be interested to see what John Lithgow does with the role, because it does seem like a role that is open to many different interpretations. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel disappointed that I saw Tony Randall, you know? Yeah, no, Absolutely. I I was I loved the performance like really, I think it 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 carried across this, you know you never you were you were never left in like rambling hands, totally commanding presence even even despite, uh the character you know needing to sort of be a bit of a chump to sort of be you know, a bit, of a, pushover kind of guy, um. Still has this like curiosity to him this like intriguing aspect that makes the audience sort of cling and the way it all gives into that fragility at the end is just thrilling to watch again the entire cast here is top notch seriously i don't think anyone would be disappointed missing the obc if they saw this cast totally totally that's not a just knock on the OBC. It's because they're just that good. Yeah. No, really is. Um, so with that. Yeah, okay. Why don't that, we. With that, I guess let's talk about the video then, huh? Mm-hmm. I was really, really happy with this video. Um, I think its biggest knock is sort of probably the washout and the fact that some detail is lost in it, as you were mentioning, sort of not very able to make out the costumes. But throughout the video, it is. You don't get facial expressions. You don't get Not any really. facial expressions. Yeah, um, yeah I guess. Go um, ahead, finish. It, it's filmed as a wide stage shot. I say no zooms. There's one zoom at the very end when he's painting his face white. Other than that, there is no zooms. You get the entire stage the entire time. And I think it's really effective. I think you get a really good sense of the staging. You're not distracted by unnecessary, I guess, camera movement. It doesn't distract you from the dialogue. And you're able to catch bits of staging that might have been unanticipated by the filmer. I think this was the right way to shoot the thing. Again, sort of aware that, um, you know, the washout is pretty severe. But overall, I was really, really happy with this video. I thought it was incredibly effective. So as said, it is a single shot of the whole stage the entire time. And it seems more interested in just archiving the overall show than a specific performance. I don't have an issue with the single shot shows, the wide shot, entire stage. When they work, they work. 
the sound here is excellent. If the sound was not good, I might have been put off. But the sound here is excellent. You get, there's a couple things that happen at this extreme stage left that you don't fully see. But you don't feel like you're missing anything important. Uh-huh. And everything is there. You get clear outlines of who each person is. You just don't see their facial expression. Yeah. Super effective. Yeah, and I and in terms of like giving this video a grade, I think I'm gonna give it an A minus, maybe a B plus if I was really, really picky about the facial expression, but I, I think it's an A minus. Uh I'm gonna give it a B. Yeah? I think they could have done some slight zooming at times. And it's, this is a specific type of filming. I don't have an issue with it. It is certainly enough to reference, here's what the show was. I was not fully emotionally invested in the experience because of how far away it was. So, yeah. I really liked this. Yeah, like, wow, this is very much, um... I, I always find it harder to answer what my favorite plays are when people ask. I find it a lot easier to answer like what my favorite musicals are, and I think it's because you haven't read you know, many plays. I guess my we've had this discussion that as well. You but but read but many again, plays. there's like a thing of like you know, my, the, what uh, what attributes to my favorite play is always like such a subjective thing. It's like, you know, is it really all about the writing? Is there a specific production of a play that I think is better than it's writing sometimes is there like you know it's all about that hang ringing with musicals i i always get it like a more simpler idea i think because i think the production of a musical is always so integrated to the text whereas there are plays that are just as effectively read as they are performed um okay and so i always have a harder time you know really narrowing down like oh this is my favorite player these are my favorite plays or whatever um I after watching this, I, I know without a doubt that this is absolutely joining the rank one of my favorite plays. Uh, we've also had conversations about now that we've recorded. What episode is this? This is about twenty five. Um, twenty eight. Th- I think. Well, now that we've done about thirty of these, we've kind of what shows have stuck with you. This is a yeah. show that's going to stick with me. Absolutely, A plus plus show and butterfly agree so that just about wraps up our discussion of m butterfly um and now on to next week's show next week's show one i'm pretty excited to jump into uh, not one. a musical by wrong sorry number. wrong number it's not one what's not one the show i'm not saying the show is one i'm saying the show is one that i'm excited to check out it's more than one you're having me do math here this is not good no hold no no no. okay no i'm not saying again not that it is one i'm just saying it's one to watch i'm so confused no it's not it's not that we're watching one it's just the next musical is one that we're watching Are you okay? I feel like I'm breaking you. Yes, you are. You are. <laughs> Explain to the audience what's happening. 
Next week we are going to be talking about the Maury Yeston musical Nine. See, Nine is more than one. Nine is greater it's, than one. It's one of those things. And like, okay, jeez, like, my God, the big mouth would be facing the nine because nine is the big number. The the big mouth. The, oh my God, are you talking about greater than, lesser than symbols? Sure. Jesus Christ, Dan. Sure. That's exhausting. <laughs> We are talking about Nine. It's a musical Not by Maury Yeston from 1982. Jesus Christ, Dan. We are talking about the 2004 Broadway revival starring 2003. You want to get the numbers right? You're not getting any numbers right right now. That revival opened in 2003, not 2004. I said 2004. All right. Oh, record that. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you know, you say I'm Clean numbers cut. challenged. Clean cut. Clean you say cut. I am numbers challenged. You don't even know what year it is. Hey, Dan. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. So the musical premiered in 1982. Uh, we are talking about the Broadway no, revival. No, premiered which went in 1983. In are you fucking kidding me? Can I not get one? In 1983. I swear on my life I saw that this... It opened in 1982, you fucking ass. No, because it was the 1980s. May 9th, 1982. Well, then when did Dreamgirls open? We are Dreamgirls both. Was Dreamgirls 1981? That, in, that was, yes, December 1981. That's that one our video that we watched. That one's on me, guys. Yo, so we, we cancel each other out. Jesus fucking Christ. No, you got multiple numbers wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. I love 52 Below. Uh, Nine is a musical from 1982. We are talking about the Broadway revival, which opened in 2003, starring Antonio Banderas. I am I am very excited to get into this show. I've heard good things about it. Uh, you've heard good things about it. Well, that's good. Well, I've heard I've heard from you that uh, apparently it was uh, the direct target of uh, Michael Bennett's champagne bottle. This is true. And who wouldn't want to be a direct target of Michael Bennett's champagne bottle? You know what? Mediocre <laughs> people never got champagne bottles thrown at them by Michael Bennett. <laughs> he just moved on with his life. At least life. he was happy for him. <laughs> he said um, as much. He said, I'm so happy I'm excited for Tommy to... Toon. <laughs> Immediately after throwing a champagne bottle at the television as the Tony Award nominations were being announced. No, as the TV reviews were being announced and Nine got fantastic reviews. It was the opening night of Nine. Mm. Oh, is that what it was? Yes. I thought it had something to do with the Tonys. And how many Tony nominations did Nine get in the original production? Um, I believe it was a whopping, what, like 10? Again, wrong with the numbers. Twelve. Twelve Tony nominations for nine on that original production. I'm looking at the page and it says ten. You're wrong. No, There's that's 12. ten categories. Ten categories. Yeah. Uh-huh. God, three three nominations for featured actresses. Mm-hmm. And how many Tonys were, was the revival nominated for? Not as much. Not as much. That one had, uh... Eight. Okay, you finally got a number right. But it's not eight, and it's not eight and a half. We're watching nine. This outro sucks. See you next week, guys. <laughs> nine.
Guido. Happy birthday to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Tune in next week when we talk about Nine, specifically the Broadway revival's performance from April 2003. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. M. Butterfly. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed here. Anymore.